politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Should Republicans impeach Joe Biden? Is Eric Adams now an immigration restrictionist? And what happened in Ohio? We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, my friend and yours, Jeff Blair, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brennan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsors this episode are ExpressVPN and the Free the Economy podcast. More about them. In due course, if for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we have the latest work product from the House Oversight Committee, a memo outlining a little bit more about the exchange of money that was involved and the Biden influence peddling Business, $20 million, 3.5, I think, from Russia. The, uh, uh, the left and some of the media saying old news. You don't have the, the goods. Um, Joe Biden was asked about this by Peter Ducey of Fox News. You know, why was he on the speakerphone with, with Hunter when he alleged he, he didn't know anything about uh, or uh, maintained they didn't know anything about his son's business dealings and Biden deemed it a lousy question and gave the same dishonest answer he's always given and then walked away. What do you make of it? Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm i trying not to be uh, like a 2017 MSNBC era commentator from the other side and saying the walls are closing in on Joe, on Joe Biden. I'm trying not to overpromise that to our listeners. But I sometimes feel like that myself. I mean, that's that's a lot more money than I thought Hunter Biden ever was involved with, um, to be totally honest. I think it's a number that jumps off the page uh, in a way previous numbers didn't. Um, and it, the the story is just waiting for synthesis, right? It's, it's waiting for synthesis of people putting together that amount of money along with, you know, quotes we've had before from Hunter's laptop about his finances being intermingled with Joe Biden's and how Hunter was paying every for everything that his father was using. Um, along with the testimony we've had from uh, Devin Archer, uh, Hunter's business partner, um, testimony he's given in a couple of interviews now, not just with Congress, but with Tucker Carlson, where he talks about how, you know, Hunter would put Joe on the phone during business meetings while he was vice president. Um, and, you know, that itself is um, crossing the red line. You know, that's, that's, that is 
you know, that is straight into the emoluments problem. And, uh, you know, I've, I was always skeptical of this story because I thought fundamentally the story was just Joe Biden not telling his son to knock it off and, uh, just being indulgent of him, but not actually cooperating in a serious way, except for the, the airline flights. Um, but that's been knocked out from under me by the, the pattern of, of facts that have been uncovered. And if there's more to come, I actually, I think Joe Biden is in serious trouble. And I think, you know, they're slowly building a case that, um, I think they've already built a case that sort of mutes corruption issues in the 2024 election. If Donald Trump is the nominee, uh, I think, you know, it, the Trump and Biden, uh, corruption charges will cancel each other out to some degree. Um, and from there, I don't, I don't know if there's another nominee, I, if, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis or, or Vivek or someone else, God help us becomes the nominee. Um, you know, Joe Biden is going to be facing this day after day on the campaign trail. I was with a friend the other night, by the way, who's predicting if, if something terrible happened to Trump and he had to drop out of the race, Vivek would be the, the front runner because he, he's the one that all the mega voters love more than anyone else besides Trump now. But that aside, Charlie, you know, they were selling access and, and that's inherently corrupt. And it doesn't really matter whether Biden did anything for these uh, clients uh, or business associates of Hunter. And, and there, there's a case that he that he did. But if Hunter's selling access and then Joe was going along with um, demonstrations uh, of the very notable demonstrations of the access, you know, get, getting on the phone with these people, that's inherently corrupt. And all these things, you know, in, including what he did in Ukraine, at least have the appearance of impropriety and maybe something worse. Yes, it is corrupt. Let's separate out these issues. There is no doubt that what we know now signals and confirms corruption. And we can tell that by using the definition of corruption or emoluments or influence peddling that was applied to Donald Trump during his presidency. Just take any of those 2017-2018 era MSNBC segments and plug in these facts and you will get that result. Or, although it's criminal law rather than impeachment, and last week we discussed the differences between those two, take a corruption case from the court system and look at the way that it is investigated and prosecuted. Even if no more information comes out, clearly this was an influence peddling operation with the at the time sitting vice president at its heart. But impeachment is a really high bar. And it's an even higher bar when the subject of the investigation is a Democrat. Spare me the outrage or irritation at that observation. We have already seen the press trying to shut this down. Chris Christie being asked, should the Republicans stop investigating the way Peter Ducey is treated whenever he asks a question? The reflexive casting of any inquiries into this as paranoia or witch hunting or Republicans pouncing. Republicans have to bat a thousand when it comes to 
prosecuting political cases because yeah, Charlie Charlie just on that point I was just looking at a USA Today story on the the report before we started recording and it's all oh this is recycled you know most of it is recycled I can't imagine there is any press account of I- any report on Trump and Russia no matter how incremental or repeated it was that ever said that the charges were repeated no so what do the Republicans have to do well, they have to keep doing what they've been doing to see if there is a high crime or misdemeanor here, or what they deem to be one, given it's a political process, that is so self-evident and so irrefutable that it would yield a fruitful or even successful impeachment drive. It is unlikely that the Senate even given a smoking gun, will impeach the president. Unless it is so obvious and so terrible that the president either has to resign or that the pressure on the Senate is is irresistible. But the Republicans could still be right. They could still gain the moral high ground. They could still advance a case that the majority of Americans consider to be true and correct even if they don't get what they want out of it. They haven't done that yet. I'm a little alarmed by the pressure I'm seeing in some quarters of the right and from some elected Republicans to file impeachment charges now. No, no, no. As I say, I think that we have clear evidence of corruption, evidence that in any other circumstance would be labeled as such. But we do not have the case that has been promised by Coma and Grassley. And we do not have a case that would cut through the typical partisan rancor. And Donald Trump should have been impeached for his role in the post-election chaos. The attempt to stage a coup he wasn't that shows you how high the bar is i just cannot see a scenario in which republicans do anything but walk into a brick wall unless they keep assiduously building their case and find something that is more obviously egregious than this so what what is something would it be like a, a communication from a burisma executive that's passed from biden to joe we need you on this trip, you know, to, to pressure to fire Shokin or a, a direct a direct uh, payment into um, a, a Joe Biden bank account. Sure. You know, these these LLC spread the, the wealth among, you know, all, all Biden family members, including grandchildren. Mm. But I, we don't have a, a, a specific payment to Joe yet. It's anything that can't be credibly spun the other way. So... As I say, I'm not downplaying the corruption we already know about. There are people who have gone to prison for that sort of influence peddling. One of the good examples that you might raise is of a mafia boss who gets on a phone call and says hi uh, when the topic is repaying a loan. We all know the implication there. But it is also true, and I say this as a defense lawyer squish, that you want to have a high bar for that sort of implication and insinuation. And it is possible, albeit unlikely, that Joe Biden really did get on the phone just to say, hello, here's 
the weather. So what you need is a payment, a confirmation of services rendered, or, as you say, an acknowledgement from the other side that Biden was involved, preferably in relation to a quid pro quo. I don't know if that exists. I don't know if that happened. I mean, it's possible that the sum total of what happened here is Joe Biden trying to help out his idiot son by saying hello on the telephone and thereby making it seem as if Hunter Biden was more plugged in and had more to offer than he did. Until the Republicans can get past that objection, if indeed there is anything past that objection, they need to keep doing what they're doing, which is uh, sedulously investigating this, releasing the results, being un phased by the media's attempt to push them off track or the, the Democrats' spin, and is discovering whether or not there is, in fact, something here that would rise to the level of impeachment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing is, as we said at the start of this exchange, you know, it's, it's what, what we know about is obviously corrupt. And it may be, you know, there's suggestions that it's clear that Joe was the big guy, right? And there are conversations about him getting a, a, a direct cut, 10% or whatever. Um, but it may be he never needed that because if you have a tight-knit family and you and they're all getting rich off of you, that might be enough for you, right? You might not need it, need the money directly. But Jeff, let's uh, hone in a little bit more on the uh, impeachment. It, it seems to me if they can get the votes, and that's the, the big question because there will be some... Republicans from moderate districts would be really nervous about taking a vote to open impeachment in- inquiry. But if, if they can get the votes, McCarthy's going to do it, and he'll talk himself into doing it just well. Impeachment inquiry, you have um, you have, have more investigative authority. It's more serious. And, and look, you're not impeaching the guy. You're just opening an inquiry. But once you do that, you're, mm-hmm. you're on a path. Right. I mean, listen, I... I, I I basically endorse uh, 100% what Charlie just said about, you know, the, the GOP needs to hold its powder, keep its powder dry and hold its fire and uh, make sure that it does not go uh, until it has a case that is absolutely rock solid. But I'll also point out that there's there's a tension here that, that I think ultimately is going to burst within the GOP sort of primary a voting electorate, the people like, not even just the, the average folks, but even people like me, because, you know, listen, that high standard of proof that Charlie mentioned, and I agree with, it was never once applied to Donald Trump. His fans will never forget that. Okay, we forget the first time Donald Trump, of course, was impeached twice. The first time he was impeached was for something that to the average guy not paying attention looks incredibly similar to this. So what's some sort of foreign influence play in Ukraine? That was Trump's. Right. And of course, this and and, and his his Trump's core contention there might have been correct. You know, we've seen evidence that, that that tends to vindicate what he was after. So Trump Trump was impeached for something people think is similar. And whether that was right or wrong, whether it was conducted, and I think probably conducted without obviously the standard of proof it definitely helped drag his numbers down in advance of his failed re-election attempt didn't it so that's why there's a psychological threshold here there's another one actually that that that, that the republicans need to get the uh, sort of the nation at large to cross which is that i think 
The problem we face here is not just the media and the Democrats who don't want this to be true and don't want this to be a story. I think the voters don't want this to be true either. Uh, there's People voted for Biden as a relief from Trump, okay? That's a fact we have to admit. After the four years of madness culminating in COVID, we can relitigate all that we want. People wanted a change. So they don't want to admit that, oh God, the guy we voted into office is just as bad as the guy that we escaped from. That's why it's hard to sell people on Joe Biden being, frankly, senile or Joe Biden also being corrupt. They don't want to believe that about their leaders. That's why you have to be really careful about making the case clearly. But when McCarthy goes with it, this is one I'm I surprised. I would have always said, don't do this. This is dumb. This is dumb. No. I mean, once they make the case, if they have the votes to impeach, I actually think they should. And I know they'll fail. You know they'll fail. But I mean, how can you... If impeachment has now become this political weapon, unfortunately, it seems like it has, uh, you can say to yourself, well, I guess we need to desist. But we live in these unique circumstances where the president and Donald Trump are running against one another. Their sins all seem to be irreparably entangled with one another. I almost feels like I don't know what happens to America until we've cleared all this wreckage. Yes, yeah, so I'll do a slight corrective because I, mm. I think um, this, I would do a slight corrective because sure. um, I think on you know senility maybe not, yeah. but you don't really have to sell people on on the fact that that. Joe Biden is in in major physical and mental decline. All the polls show that, and you don't need to sell it because they just they see it. But I take your point that it's hard to convince them. You know, he's a, a radical progressive or going along with radical progressives because he's a doddering old man who's been around forever and you know had this image. You know, as an old old Joe. And the same thing with corruption. It's hard to convince people. Uh, this is where I agree with you. You know, they they some sort of criminal mastermind. Even though he might have been, even though he might have been. So MBD, exit question to you. House Republicans will end up impeaching Joe Biden. Yes or no? Uh, um, yeah, they will. They'll, they'll eventually convince themselves. Charlie? I think they will either way, which is what worries me. I hope if they do that it's because they have discovered sufficient grounds i worry that if they don't discover sufficient grounds which doesn't mean joe biden isn't corrupt it just means that the impeachment process would be fruitless uh, i worry that they're going to essentially set in motion uh, an irresistible train as the democrats did in 2019 which they are unable to stop jeff what Charlie said, basically, exactly to the word. I mean, this is going to happen one way or another. We just better hope that it happens for better reasons and with better proof than it's it could otherwise have. Yeah, I agree. It's going to happen. <clears throat> the chance it doesn't is just, you know, there's a handful of House Republicans are just like, no, we're not going to do this. It's going to be a disaster for me and, and my my district. There's some, there's some chance of that. But whether they have the goods or not, and maybe they'll actually get the goods, uh, and the goods exist, and they'll, they'll get them. But one way or the other, they are going to impeach Joe Biden and enjoy it. They'll really actually enjoy it. With that, let's go to Charlie to hear a message from our first sponsor, ExpressVPN. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like forgetting to mute yourself on Zoom and everyone hears you trash-talking your co-workers. I don't need to worry about that at the editors. We do it for the public. 
It may just be a bit of harmless banter, but what happens if your boss overhears you talking about his receding hairline or his terrible views on baseball? Internet service providers. What? Oh, what? It's all right. <laughs> Internet service providers know every single website you visit. ISPs can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who then use your data to target you. Well, ExpressVPN stops that. What it does in a nutshell is reroute your network data, all of it through a secure encrypted tunnel so your ISP can't see or sell your online activity. In other words, every single thing you do is transmitted to ExpressVPN first, then it hits the rest of the internet. It's extremely simple to use. That sounds complicated. It is complicated, but not for you. You just fire up the ExpressVPN app, you click one button, and it connects, and then you are protected ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET and Tech Radar, and it works on phones, laptops. They even have a router, which you would call a router. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can be protected. I use ExpressVPN at home. I use it uh, whenever I head out to a hotel room or an airport or anywhere. There could be somebody who set up uh, a fake access point and is hoping to look at my emails to and from with Dominic Pino about Rich's terrible baseball opinions and then forward it to him. Uh, if you too want to be able to protect yourself on the internet, then you should visit expressvpn.com slash editors today. That's expressvpn.com slash editors, which is E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash editors. And if you do, if you add that editors bit, you'll get an extra three months free. Thanks so much, Charlie. So MBD, I, I used to, to think, based on what, what I was hearing from um, big city progressives, that immigration was an unalloyed good. That didn't matter whether immigrants were coming legally or illegally. It didn't matter where they were coming from or what skills they had, that they, they, were, they were all, all a, a good and benefit to our society, such that it was even a great thing for urban areas to work to undermine federal immigration enforcement. And now, now I learned from New York City Mayor Eric Adams that actually and a flow of immigrants can actually bring a big city, a, the greatest city in the country, to its knees. The economic engine of the entire nation can be destroyed by a flow of immigrants. Now, there have been a lot of immigrants into New York City the last couple of years, 100,000. Not all those have stayed. Uh, but but uh, Adams is complaining about this funnel that's been created into America's big cities, not just New York, but Los Angeles and Houston and Chicago have uh, had to receive immigrants from the uh, the border crisis. They all should have stayed in, in border states, which we've had this busing program, but they wouldn't have stayed in, in border states anyway. And what Adams is is learning to his regret, he says it's the, the estimate now is next three years will cost the city $12 billion to, to house and care for these people, $4 billion a year. That's assuming that the flow keeps keeps going at, at current levels. And the NYPD annual budget is is something like uh, $5.8 yeah. million. Yeah, um, it's more, I mean, $5 billion is more than the city spends on sanitation parks and fire department combined. Yeah, sorry, I said million at the end there, but it meant billion. And um, 
you know, he has, he's basically said, like, I am putting up a no vacancy sign. We are, he's, we are full, he's said. And it gets to this, this thing that, um, I know I've talked about in, I don't know, uh, 20, 30 columns, which is that immigration policy is two questions. Who and how many, right? And Democrats have typically, or have fallen into a habit at the national level of saying, well, enforcing a border is racist, right? Enforcing a border extends white supremacy because it, it prevents America from becoming more diverse and more colorful. Uh, and it, it, it focuses police forces on, on bodies of color or whatever. And now you finally have a Democrat who is saying, no, the numbers are unsustainable and they're, you know, that there are just limits to this. And part of it is because New York provides has committed to providing uh, shelter and, uh, Eric Adams has made a very big deal that he does not want New York to become the way Los Angeles and San Francisco have become, which is like there are just tent cities springing up within the city itself. And so a lot of migrants are being housed in hotels around New York City in Manhattan. And in the last couple of weeks, that's come bursting out. It's burst out onto the street. And he said, I can't guarantee it won't happen again if the flow doesn't stop and um, you know, he's, he's, he said, you're going to decimate the foundation of this city. And this city is the foundation of the American economy. Right. And um, immigration is going to destroy America is what he's saying now. <laughs> I mean, Mark Krikorian should be his, his immigration advisor. <laughs> now, now I will say, I will say, you know, he hasn't come all the way around to, uh, there are wrinkles to his position. And I admire it. I admire that he's also defending New York City's own standards for how we're going to treat uh, migrants, that we're not going to have tent cities and there is going to be food provided for children. Um, you know, that that is all well and good, but he can't do that without a national policy. And he's said, we need to, to have a real decompression strategy at the border. The one thing I will say, though, is he is also saying... Uh, and, and this is where he would come into major conflict with conservatives. He says, we need to allow illegal immigrants to work legally. Mm-hmm. And that, right. that's, a, that's a huge part of the problem is that basically his view is that the vast majority of these people would immediately get jobs if they were allowed to work legally and would support themselves and not be this huge drain on the city's budget. But the thing is, is like, that's not, that's not an acceptable thing is that the United States labor market is suddenly uh seven and a half billion people worldwide. Right. That's right. not, yeah. that's It'd not gonna... even more of a magnet and all, all those low, lower strata jobs, the wages would instantly go lower. Um, yeah. I will say at least Adams, you know, at the beginning, it's all like, Oh, how, how could Greg Abbott being uh, be doing this, this dirty thing to me now, it's actually, no, we need to, uh, the Biden administration needs to step up. So well, he never would have said so many stupid things if Mark Krikorian had, had actually been his immigration advisor <laughs> from the beginning. But Jeff, this um, creates interesting tensions, you know, in these big cities. There was an example uh, there in Chicago, your hometown, a couple months ago, where I think there was a, a vacant high school 
that there is um, talk of making it a rec center, and then the city's like, no, you know what we're going to do there? We're going to house, house migrants. <laughs> you know, so we're, we're going to take this uh, neighborhood. I think it was in the west side. I'm not sure. And uh, all of a sudden, all these people from El Salvador are going to be plumped right into the middle of your, of your uh, neighborhood. And African Americans showed up at this community meeting and we're not amused and we're not supportive and we're really angry and some of them were chanting or holding signs saying build the wall well there are there, there are tensions everything that michael was talking about going on with eric adams in new york city uh, those are all replicated here in chicago and for all the same reasons it's you know a big blue city that hung up the big you know with sanctuary city welcome sign and uh, guess what a lot of a lot of uh, people are being sent here and um I know it's the easiest thing in the world for Republicans and conservatives who live in red states to, to just look at the situation and just sit there like Jerry Seinfeld reclining on the couch saying, oh, well, that's a shame, isn't it, right? And you, you can enjoy the irony, but there's, there's a real cost to the kind of disruptions in these communities. It, you find it's, in, even in Pilsen, they're setting up shelters. Now, I need to explain this. Chicago geography. Pilsen is a Mexican Hispanic neighborhood. Okay, so the idea of like bringing the immigrants, of course, overwhelmingly are from Central and South America, uh, to there, think it would make sense, but it isn't. Okay, because for the same reasons that, that that Michael just pointed out, you're flooding the labor force. All of a sudden, there are these these mouths to feed, and they're there, and the, they're not they're new, they're new to the country and they're inevitably you know crime becomes an issue too these people aren't well kept track of it's a big problem and it is leading to you know further urban breakdown in places where the media just isn't looking these days so like you know you never hear you hear about new york because new york is where the media lives you're not really hearing about chicago's stories you hear about them every now and then uh, and then i can't imagine what it must be like in other cities as well this is going to be an issue that 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 begins to sort of gnaw at the fabric of, I believe, the democratic coalition itself. When, when, when other people are, you know, not only losing job opportunities, that's maybe not necessarily going to happen except off the books, but are, are losing quality of life uh, because, the, you know, the flow is not being stopped. Charlie? This is the side of progressivism that I loathe and that I suspect a majority of Americans loathe too. It is hypocritical and it illustrates the capacity of the professional progressive mind to move between diametrically opposed hyperboles without any loss of enthusiasm. These people go from, have you seen the Statue of Liberty? Have you read the poem on it? They go from crying at the border... They go from spreading lies about border agents. They go from lionizing Ellis Island to proposing that the influx of a few thousand of the people that until yesterday they were suggesting could fit quite happily into tiny border towns in Texas is going to strain the social fabric to such an extent that it represents a crisis. And there's nothing in the middle. There's no acknowledgement that they've changed their mind. There's no slow transition from one to the other. They just turn on a dime as if overnight they had downloaded the latest patch to their software. And the words come out with equal vim. 
I find that infuriating. I understand that immigration is a complicated topic, but that's precisely why you shouldn't talk about it in hyperbolic terms in the first place. We all agree, absent a few libertarians, who are admirable and consistent, although I think wrong, that, as Michael says, the question here is who and how many. The questions that attach to that are also where and what happens when they get here. I like reasoned discussions about immigration. You will not catch me saying everyone should come in, and you will not catch me, obviously, as an immigrant, saying nobody should come in. But from what I can see, progressives in this country have nothing to add to that discussion. They have as much to add to the discussion as the knee-jerk Archie Bunker conservatives who say, send them all home. None. So we've gone from one extreme to another, and we've got what? We've got no change in the national discourse. We've got no change in national policy. What we have done, which I think is salutary, is demonstrate some hypocrisy and perhaps add to the list of, as progressives might say, lived experiences of people in big cities in the Northeast when it comes to illegal immigration. But these people are useless, I'm afraid. There is at some point <laughs> going to be... They are useless. It, it, is, yeah, it, is utterly, it is utterly futile trying to use them within a debate about immigration. Look, I think the immigration system is broken. I think it's broken on both the legal and illegal side. Without hijacking this and digressing for too long, Illegal immigration is obviously a massive problem. The border is porous. One of the two major parties in the United States does not want to fix that. Legal immigration, which I'm in favor of, is a mess. The vast majority of people come in legally via chain migration and not on the basis of skills or points in the way that they would in, say, Australia or Britain or Canada, at some point, we are actually going to have to sit down together and say, what do we want? I understand the distrust here after what has happened in previous compromises, but we are going to have to do that because the status quo is unsustainable on both sides of the aisle. But progressives, at least thus far, just aren't in it. And this is a great illustration of it. So I am utterly in favor of sending them up north. I'm sorry, Jeff, I understand what you're saying about the cost, but this seems to be the only way that we have got people in New York or Chicago or Martha's Vineyard or whatever to comprehend what it is that is, that, that is happening. I understand that's not a long-term solution, but I do think that's probably politically necessary. But until progressives are able to find somewhere between no human being is illegal and ugh, get them out of my restaurant, then they're not going to be a useful part of the political coalition that is eventually going to have to solve this. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, Eric Adams is the guy, I mean, it was Michael's point that Eric is, is talking, Eric Adams is talking to the administration now and not to Republicans. And so he's saying, hey, Biden, you need to stop this. And that's how you get them to actually, that's how you grind these gears and you get these levers to move. Yeah, and yeah. You, you, you make a good point when you talk about the coalition, because the, the Democratic coalition, which is an increasingly odd and ill-at-ease coalition, which is what happens when you win, 
you build a coalition that essentially turns on itself. It pulls itself apart, right? right. Yeah. That coalition is going to split into different factions that are irreconcilable. You're going to have some who say, yes, please, Mr. President, let's do something about this. And then you're going to have the people who have convinced themselves that any immigration enforcement whatsoever is racist. And you, never the twain shall meet. But at the moment, I, I find this so annoying. And, and lest I sound monomaniacal, there is an awful lot of this on the right as well. There is an awful lot of uh, silly non-thinking on the right. But the right isn't in power. Every time the right tries to do something about this, the courts say, probably correctly, actually Congress has plenary power over this and the federal government's in charge. So yeah, at the moment, our irritation should be aimed at progressives who are, are incoherent and silly. So, Charlie, the, the busing point, be, beyond just being, being a way to get Democrats to, to take this uh, seriously and, and realize the burden it is, there's also no reason in principle, if you ask a, a migrant, do you want to go to New York? And they say, yeah, <laughs> you shouldn't buy him a bus ticket. Why, 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 do they, why is he going to stay in El Paso, <laughs> you know, if he, if he has a cousin in, in New York City or whatever? But anyway, MBD, exit question to you. More Democrats around the country will begin sounding like Eric Adams, for whatever it's worth, on immigration, yes or no? I don't know. Um, I'm surprised we don't hear more out of California where the quality of life issues are really uh, acute. Um, and I just want to note, it's not just the Southern governors like Abbott and DeSantis that are busing people to New York. It's FEMA. It's, it, mm -hmm. it's the federal government itself. Right. And that's what Adams was complaining about, too, is that FEMA is paying to push people into New York. Um, so I think you'll see some as influx comes in, right? Like, so there are blue areas, uh, you know, like even where I am in, in Westchester County or sometimes Putnam County can even go blue where you're getting overflow from the cities and those officials are starting to say, Hey, we can't cope with this either. Um, yeah, so I think I think this spreads because the 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 influx is not stopping. So it, it the effect of it will continue spreading. Jeff Moore, Democrats will sound like Eric Adams, yes or no? No, that's my thought. I'm going to go counter here. I think the answer is no, and because it gets back to what Charlie was saying uh, at the end there about the divide between the uh, sort of the people living on the ground who have to deal with the consequences of these things and what we'd call them, the white educated liberals who seemingly run the show and dictate the uh, agenda. And uh, it's this is verboten to say in their circles. You just you are not going to be able to stand up and make the case and until much until it gets so much worse that it is no longer avoidable. So I think it's going to, it's certainly not going to happen soon. They won't, we're not going to see realism on the left about this. It's it's going to fester. Charlie. I think at the moment the consequences are so distributed and attenuated that you're probably not going to see a shift. But I do think over time it's going to bubble up from below, from the cities, within the coalition, and divide it. And that's the purpose, obviously, of sharing the burden. And it is a burden. And making people who put 
signs outside their homes or call themselves sanctuary cities aware of what that involves. I mean, progressives said for a long time to people who are against all immigration, which is a preposterous position, okay, well, I guess that you won't be going out to eat anymore, or I guess that you don't want your lawn cut, or, you know, that is a horribly reductive and sometimes condescending way of looking at it. But there is some truth to it. There are immigrants throughout society who do wonderful things. If you don't want any immigration, maybe you shouldn't take advantage of that. Well, what does it mean to be a sanctuary city? What does it mean to have a sign saying no human being is illegal? Uh, the, the purpose here is to make those who say these things live up to it. And the more of those people you create, the more pressure there is. So I think Jeff is right now in that this is still early. But I do think over time, especially if the border is not fixed, the, the consequences will be more evenly shared and then, therefore the politics will be too. Yeah, maybe we need to start printing signs. This house believes that human beings from another country in my neighborhood that are fiscal and burdened otherwise are illegal. <laughs> Rich, I knew you were going to make a this house believes joke because I was thinking the same thing as Charlie was talking. Yeah. Well, what did they think yeah. it meant when they stood there and said, we're a pro-immigrant city, we're a sanctuary city? I know. I mean, that's the, that's the part where I'm like Jerry on the sanctuary. couch saying, that's a shame. You got to live with the yeah. consequences of your... What do they think your- sanctuary means? What, what you, words have meaning. I mean, if I stand up and I say, you know, I want to pay more taxes, and then the government raises my taxes, and then I say, what the hell is this? I just got through the mail. Don't I deserve <laughs> to be laughed at? I didn't mean I wanted. I wanted you to pay more taxes. That's what I meant. That's exactly yeah, like what these a, people are saying. They're like, I want you to shoulder this burden. Like and a sanctuary, it with, with, it's like churches taking in. Right. You know, you're wanted by the law, and the churches take you in, and you sleep on the floor or the pews of the church. Right. It's like you're there. You're physically so occupied. I, I do think. I do think we we will hear more. More Democrats, incrementally, more Democrats sounding like Eric Adams. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode, the Free the Economy podcast. Health, wealth, and happiness, three goals that are essential to our lives, but attaining them is often impeded by heavy-handed government controls. That's why we must free the economy. Free the Economy is a weekly podcast produced by the Competitive Enterprise Institute that documents the opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment in a world with less government control. How can smart urbanism improve our lives? Where is economic freedom under attack? How can we unleash the potential of small business owners and innovators. Each week, host Richard Morrison offers news you can use in fascinating conversations with experts in their fields to answer these questions and more. I think we can all agree freedom is contagious. So check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash free the economy, cei.org slash free the economy. Our friends at CEI do excellent work across the board. So please check out their podcast. So, Charlie, we've been discussing since before Roe went down what the political consequences would be. We had another unfortunate indicator of what the political consequences are in Ohio this week. There is a referendum on the ballot in November, very vaguely and kind of dishonestly worded. That's a sweeping pro-abortion measure that is, has polled well. And in Ohio, you only need 50 votes to amend the Constitution, which is what this referendum, 50% of the vote to amend the Constitution, which is what this referendum would do. So pro-lifers like, you know what, we'll, we'll have a referendum on raising the threshold to make it 60, and that'll at least give us a shot 
in November. This was voted on um, this Tuesday and went down um, hugely, uh, a big, a big defeat. And probably you know, the odds were always against this, but big turnout given it was a, an August uh, one shot vote, not as high as the midterms, but uh, fairly, fairly close in the scheme of things. And, you know, just the the case against this was pretty easy. You're limiting democracy. We had this uh, means to change the referendum, the voters, the good people of Ohio, and you're trying to to take it away. And all of a sudden, you're concerned about what the threshold is. But that's only because you're concerned with defeating this measure in November and it went down and seems likely that the referendum in November will pass. What do you make of it? I'm a legislature guy. I hate these referenda. I don't think that constitutions should be repositories of transient political will. If I had my way, no state would have ballot initiatives any amendment to any constitution would take at least two-thirds. And the public would understand to a man that constitutions are for foundational principles, not for quotidian political concerns. If you look, for example, at the Texas Constitution, it reads in many parts like a statute book rather than a constitution. But I'm not in charge, and I'm especially not in charge and should not be in charge in Ohio, where I don't live. And the fact that the incumbent party there, the Republicans, tried to do this is a sign of weakness on the abortion question. The argument that was made in favor of changing the rules in Ohio was one that, in a vacuum, I agreed with entirely. Clearly, though, and as you noted in your question, it was made in advance of a ballot initiative on the topic of abortion that the Republicans believe that they are going to lose. I've been critical in print and on this podcast of Republicans for being unprepared for the realization of a 50-year goal. The party simply did not prepare for Dobbs. But that is only a small part, I'm afraid, of the problem that pro-lifers such as myself have. The larger problem is that the public is not where we are. And worse still, the public is not where we are, even in states where conservatives win as a matter of routine. The public is indeed appalled by abortions after a certain point. Once you reach the second trimester, to use the now defunct rubric within Roe, support for legal abortion falls off a cliff, goes down to 30%, maybe less. Once you reach the third trimester, it goes down to 10%, sometimes less. But Americans... A supermajority of Americans, probably a supermajority of Americans that would be able to amend even the federal constitution, is attached to abortion in the first trimester. And that supermajority reads these ballot initiatives 
as asking them whether or not they want to ban that, even if the language of the ballot initiatives does not, in fact, only protect abortion in the first trimester. I have compared before these initiatives to those you find on Second Amendment questions, where whatever the wording is, the public tends to read the issue as, do you or do you not want to ban the right to keep and bear arms? And I suspect that unless Republicans can do a really good job of distinguishing between that general sentiment and the specific text of an amendment, or change public sentiment on abortion per se, which should be the long-term goal, that the pro-life side is going to keep losing these one by one, even in places that you might not suspect. I'll give a closing example of this by pointing to Florida, where I live. Florida is, at the moment at least, a red and reddening state. Florida has a supermajority of Republicans in the state house, a supermajority of Republicans in the state Senate. It has two Republican senators at the federal level. It has, I think, 20 out of 28 Republicans in the House of Representatives. And the governor here won by 20 points, as did pretty much everyone else who ran statewide. There are no statewide elected Democrats in Florida at the moment. In addition, Florida has a constitutional amendment, again, I don't think this is how it should have been done, but it was, that makes it illegal for the state legislature to raise any taxes or fees without two-thirds of the legislature in both houses agreeing. It is pretty conservative at the moment, and it is pretty Republican too, but if we got a ballot initiative like Ohio's on the ballot in Florida in 2024, it would pass. I have no doubt in my mind it would pass. That's the challenge Republicans face. Some of this is about preparation, yes. It's also about being on the, I don't mean this morally, I'm a pro-lifer to my core, the wrong side of public opinion on this issue and having not moved the needle enough yet and not been smart enough in the way that we talk about this issue to prevail in these scenarios. I see it getting much worse before it gets better. Yeah, MBD, it, it looks pretty grim and the um the case for for optimism or uh, you know modified pro-life optimism after dobbs is there are more abortion restrictions right that, around the country than than it had existed in uh, since uh, before roe obviously there are fewer abortions the um the republicans took the house to, despite this uh, this post-roe political environment but the case for pessimism is these ballot measures. And the the, uh, the optimist said, well, look, you know, Brian Kemp and Kim Reynolds and DeWine in Ohio, they signed heartbeat bills and, and they survived. Well, that's because there are all sorts of confounding variables on whether you're going to uh, vote for an incumbent governor who's done a lot of things besides abortion policy. So what we're seeing is when you get the, the pure question presented to people, it has gone against us literally invariably. Yeah, and the the case for pessimism is, of course, like, so pro-lifers, you didn't like Roe v. Wade, how would you like 50 of them at the state level, you know, like uh, 50 constitutional rights to abortion to fight rather than one? Um, yeah, this is, this is daunting. Uh, it is a testament to how 
Um, you know, it's a testament to a lot of things. Part of it is status quo bias, right? That Republicans are taking a hit because they've changed the status quo, and that typically angers people who, um, you know, uh, it motivates people who are angry about status quo change to get to the polls, while it leaves, you know, there are a lot of people who are like pro-life in the Republican Party, but hate the Republican Party otherwise, and, you know, aren't enthusiastic political participants otherwise. So they got the result they wanted in row, and then they kind of taper off a little bit um, in their participation. Um, this is a, a huge challenge. Um, you know, people know that pro-lifers are against abortion and and that many of us are against almost all of them, um, or all of them. And that is a position that's out of line with public opinion in America. And there's a, there's also like a huge... <laughs> subsection of public opinion that just doesn't want to think about this and doesn't want to uh, address it as a as a um, self-governing citizen, right? Like, wishes this topic wouldn't be discussed at all. Um, it feels too personal, too raw, too, um, too difficult. And I think that vote goes against pro-lifers in these contests. So, yeah. um... So Jeff, I'm actually going to go straight to the exit question for you, for to you, because I'm going to double barrel it and bring in actually another topic. But related to abortion, Ron DeSantis, his when he's asked about federal legislation, he doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He he sort of sounds like no, right? He's he's not going to push it, but he's going to be pro life. And and if you know a 15 week ban was put on his desk, he he would sign it. But he he's sort, he's not really saying saying that and kind of maintaining this straddle in the unlikely event at the moment, at least that he's the Republican nominee. Will that be a sustainable position for him in a general election? Yes of no. course, of course, it won't be. I mean, for all the same reasons that that we've just discussed here, that Charlie and, and Michael pointed out. And it's by the way, it, it's great that you double barreled me because this is exactly the place I was going anyway with my point. Rich. All right, okay, I'll come, it's, I'll come around with the other with the other barrel in a. Uh, oh no! Moment. Oh no! This but, is only the first one. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, my yeah. my point is this: is that you know every I, Charlie's point about it, it's not just preparation. Now we didn't prepare for a post row future, but also we're on the wrong side of public opinion here, and that's why you see conservatives at this point grasping desperately for federal legislation or something even more striking in, in all consuming like a, you, you hear talk of like a Supreme Court ruling uh, saying that there's a right to life under the 14th Amendment. This is crazy crazy kind of legal theory that some people are trying to push and I, I, I will just say the way I interpret the Constitution at least, no. No way. No Surrey Bob. The whole point of Roe was to return this matter to the states and uh, I think conservatives now uh, who are the, the ones who were politically engaged in the pro-life issue are kind of scrambling because they're sort of realizing that, wait, uh, maybe we need to just impose our own fiat the other way around. No, I, the, the, Roe was wrong, and, and anything that would be the opposite of Roe would be equally wrong. So, Charlie, a DeSantis uh, position, this DeSantis position as, as the nominee would be sustainable. Yes, I think politically speaking, that's probably the best answer because it signals that when the president has power that has been delegated to him, for example, executive actions that relate to abortion or enforcing existing law, he will take a pro-life approach. And 
that he would be willing to sign a ban that is right in the middle of where Americans are. 15 weeks is not that comfortable for Democrats. Constitutionally, I have a problem with it. I know I'm out on a limb on this, but I don't think that the federal government has any power to regulate abortion in either direction whatsoever. Not because of Dobbs, but because the enumerated powers doctrine simply does not grant this power to the federal government. I have written that, I believe that, and if Ron DeSantis were to sign a 15-week ban, I would oppose it for those reasons. But most people on left and right, for different reasons, don't think that. So if you're running as a Republican president in a post-Dobbs world, saying this is largely for the states, I would vote... um, I would sign a 15-week ban if it hit my desk, and I will be pro-life in other areas. It's probably about as good as you can get. MBD, sustainable? It's not sustainable. Republicans are going to be, you know, like the pro-life movement for all we've criticized it. We have to admit that it got over two generations presidential candidates to commit more and more explicitly to their goals in the Republican Party. And so they're going to get um, the next nominee to commit to some kind of federal ban that's in that, you know, 12, 15-week uh, area. Uh, and they'll probably push push harder from there in future elections. Um, yeah. So I'm going to say it's not sustainable. It's probably sustainable, but... MBD might be right and might not even be sustainable in the nomination fight, but but I think it it might be just because Trump is um, ambiguous on this too. And I think in a general election, it would just become he favors it because he would sign it. So he'd get uh, hit hit almost um, as much as if he just came out and said, yeah, I, I affirmatively won it. So this is the promised second barrel Jeff, Donald Trump. I was waiting. I was yeah, waiting. Here, it is. That. here, now, it here is. I go. You have any guesses what it might be? <clears throat> And well, you said Donald Trump. It's going to involve him. Yeah, there you go. Yes. <laughs> so we so got the you debate. You take your hand. You shared yeah, your cards, We got Rich. the debate August 23rd. Donald Trump will show up at the first presidential debate. Yes or no? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, thank you. Thank you. No. I'm going to say no. But if you're right, he could really go either way. No. Jeff's a no. Charlie? No. MBD. We got two no's on the board. I think he will. I mean, I think, I think, um, you know, Kelly and Conway and others have kind of said like, keep the podium warm. I, you know, I, th- I think he'll show up in the end. He'll, he'll do a movie star entrance and just sort of swan in and dominate the whole thing. Isn't that, that's his play. I think, I think so. I'm beginning. I've been a no for a, a long time and have thought he, he shouldn't just because you get the scorpion squabbling in a bottle and let, let Chris Christie, you know, right. Yeah, let them all eat each at, other. Right. Yeah, yeah. Take the shots at DeSantis as the, as the biggest uh, guy in the room at that in that circumstance. But I don't know. Just like um, showing up at the last minute. They, they got to wheel another podium onto the stage and move it's the other drama. out. And, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's what Trump loves, right? Yeah. Exactly. The, the big dog, big footing, everybody else. It and could then, happen. You know, and then maybe showing, you know, he's not, not afraid of anyone, not, you know, not cowed at all by the, the latest indictment. So, and, and so maybe, I really don't know. I really don't know. But I might, but I might be ticking, ticking. He'll show up. With that, let me do a real quick NR Plus plug. There are all sorts of reasons to sign up 
for NR Plus. The most important, though, it's it's an essential way to support our crucial journalism. We need people to pay for our content. We don't need them to pay a lot. We just need them to pay a little bit. And when you do, magic happens. The paywall goes away if you sign up for NR Plus and log in, the ads go away. You know, we don't like running ads. We don't want to distract you while you're reading our stuff. For us, our stuff is the whole point of the enterprise, but we do need to make some incremental income on every view. But if you're actually paying for our content, we're not going to do that to you. So the ads disappear and you can be part of a really vibrant commenting community on articles and blog posts. If that floats your boat, be invited to exclusive events. So it's a great deal. But again, the key thing is if you appreciate our content, if you consider it valuable, just pay a little bit for it. That's all we're asking. Just just a little bit. So if you haven't signed up already, please consider doing it and joining tens of thousands of your fellow National View readers as a member of NR Plus. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you are anticipating your vacation. When's your vacation going to be? Uh, when? Uh, next week. Next Thursday we start. Jersey Shore again. Jersey Shore again. Yeah, yeah. It's the annual trip, and um, you're gonna be uh, dr- driving uh, uh, dri- driving um, mopeds through the uh, uh, on the streets of Jersey late at night through the soft summer rain. Yeah, well, that's basically yeah. I mean, that's the dream, right? Is uh, when my my cousins or my brothers-in-law rent these stupid mopeds, and then I just drive them up and down the uh, the barrier islands <laughs> late at night. Uh, to get a little peace uh, and feel the vibration of the road in your in the forearms. Wow! Well, well. uh, but yeah, it's just I, I love the um, no. I just I, I love we do a big family vacation. It's just fun. I think a huge. I think one of the huge like uh, hedonic benefits of vacation is in the anticipation of it. Of like it's coming. I'm gonna get this relaxation in. I'm gonna take a couple of books I've been meaning to read and really dig into them. And, uh, yeah, so I'm just, I'm heading into that mode this weekend, uh, as I start packing. You've been texting with Snooky. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, uh, I have a story about Snooky after, uh, after we're off air. (laughs) I think you've just, you've just uh, created a hostage to fortune there, Michael. (laughs) Jeff, William Freakin. Yeah, I mean, I've been watching the films of uh, Billy Friedkin for the last week, and I, I wrote a, a, an appreciation of him. He passed away uh, at the age of 83, I believe. Uh, and this is a guy that I think is right there, ranks up with the, the greats of the 70s, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg. Uh, Friedkin's up there with them, and, and people always think of The Exorcist as his, you know, his signature work and in the obituaries. That's what everybody focused on. But my God, folks, you need to go watch two of his later films. The French Connection which is before The Exorcist is also well regarded but people don't people sleep on films like Sorcerer and To Live and Die in LA these are films about people basically stretched I, I, to the limits I love To Live and Die in LA Okay, well, you know what? Not enough people seem to know because it's it's such a fantastic movie. He shot it on a budget, guerrilla filmmaking. There were no stars. William Defoe became a star later, but he wasn't a star at the time. And boy, that film holds up. And so I just I've really enjoyed going back and looking over his work. And he, you know, R.I.P. to a real one. So I, I was not uh, really familiar with him and didn't get a chance to read your piece. So I was trying to to find out more about this before I asked you. So I have my my current Google search is Jeff Blair. Freakin, F R E A K I N. 
and, and nothing came up. Nothing came up. Well, that's not, good. That, that's, that's on good you, thing. Jeff. But nothing came up. I'm very. I, so you know what? It's like Jeff Blair nude photographs. Nothing came up. I'm very glad. Actually, a lot comes up with that one. It's, uh, it's in the file of MBD plus Snooky. That's uh, <laughs> right, indeed. That, that that that's Chatham House rules. We can't talk about that. So, Charlie, speaking of movies, you watched Munich recently. I did. I don't watch too many movies. I don't get the time. When I do get the time, my kids are around, so I can't watch anything that would be inappropriate for them, and this movie would certainly be inappropriate for them. But I am trying to work my way through the canons of certain directors, and this was a Spielberg movie that I hadn't seen. So yesterday, I watched it. My kids were out. And I thought it was terrific. I do understand and I think agree with the conservative objection that there's a little bit too much Tony Kushner-led moral equivocation in it, and it turns out that the people who staged these retaliatory raids were not uh, driven to drink by worry about their immortal souls. But as a piece of filmmaking, it really was terrific, and I know nothing about the craft, so I can't tell you how this was done and the way I'd be able to with music but not only were the sets and clothes and so forth fantastic and of the era it's set in the early 70s but the way the movie is made and paced and shot and the colors in it i think it's called grading they look 1970s halfway through i sort of forgot that i wasn't watching a movie from the 1970s it's actually made in 2005 so it's it's absolutely worth watching so speaking of summer reading, vacation reading. Actually, when I was away a couple weeks ago, uh, around July 4th, with MBD on, the, on the, the Jersey Shore, I was reading this great book about the 1986 Mets, The Bad Guys Won, by a guy named Jeff Perlman. I believe MBD knows a This is bit. a great book. I yeah, love this fan- book. Yeah, it's fantastic. I'm, I, I have no use for the Mets, but that was a, that was a great team. And it opens with a, a, a vignette. The Mets have just won this NLCS, one of the great championship series in Major League history, against the Astros in this uh, extra inning saga. And they, they get on the, the plane and they've petitioned the team management to allow their wives and their girlfriends to co- come on the plane with them back to New York. And it, it's just a bacchanalia. <laughs> They're just like drinking and then this cake served and they're all drunk and they start throwing the cake around the plane and then people start throwing up and then you know it's five in the morning or whatever and they get off in new york and fans are there to greet them and they come out this like disgusting mess which is something that just just w- wouldn't happen today because it's, it's gone uh, uh, uh baseball's gone to too corporate but what what an entertaining team that destroyed itself they should have been great for for years but a lot of these players really uh, destroyed themselves and then there's some some poor uh, talent decisions made by the the management, but a highly entertaining book. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? My pick is Jeff's tribute to Robbie Robertson of the band. Um, uh, the band is one of my mother's favorite uh, musical acts. Love Leon Levon Helm, um, and Robbie Robertson was kind of the musical genius, really driving it. And um, so, check it out if you don't. If you don't know their music, uh, Jeff's piece is a great place to start. Jeff, what's your pick? 
Well, I was going to be a punk and say that uh, maybe the best piece was Charlie's very quick piece pointing out that, let's face it, women's soccer is awful. But in reality, uh, I think I'm going to go with Andy McCarthy talking and just doing the tick, tick, tick on the Biden case in the Department of Justice. And he points out, this is something we discussed over it. This is not oversight. It's a strategy to keep him out of danger. Just to keep you up to date on something that, you know, the clock runs on this and we don't always address it. But as the days pass by, you know, deadlines are elapsing to bring him, to give him any kind of justice. Okay. So I said last episode that I hate Dominic Pino. Of course, I said it sardonically. I love Dominic Pino. Dominic Pino has written a piece in this issue of the magazine called Cricket Comes to America. And he is just extremely annoying because I know this topic. He says in it, most Americans don't even know how the game works, let alone follow it as fans. Well, I do know how the game works. I grew up playing it. I grew up watching it. I sometimes text about it with my dad. Dominic didn't. And yet he's written about this sport as well as anyone I've ever read write about this sport, including people who've been writing about it for years and grew up with it and love it and follow it really closely. Uh, You and I have observed before, Rich, both on and off this podcast, you can give Dominic any topic and he'll come back with something interesting. Well, this is the test case. If you were to pluck something out of the ether and say, what could we possibly give him to see whether this is true? Cricket would have been one of the best answers. And so it has come to pass. So my pick is Noah Rothman. Today, the morning jolt, our friend and colleague Jim Garrity is away this week. So the aforementioned Dominic and Noah have been filling in. They're both awesome at it. And Noah just did this wonderful uh, analysis and takedown of Joe Biden's interview with the Weather Channel. And on top of everything else, this is a meditation on the perils, actually the perils, of doing an overly friendly Interview. So that's it for us. You've been listening to the National Review podcast, a rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to ExpressVPN and Free the Economy. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We are the editors, and see you next time.